Hello, good morning. It is April the 19th, 2020, and these are the Pandemic Lectures. Uh, my name is Bob Lawrence. I'm one of the Bible class teachers at the Anchorage Church of Christ, and it's a pleasure to be with you this morning. And once again, I invite you to come into our home and allow me to share with you what we will be discussing in our family today from the book of 2 Timothy, which is currently the letter that we are going through together as a congregation. Today we're in 2 Timothy chapter 2, and so uh, if you would, grab a Bible and make your way over to that letter of 2 Timothy, and we'll share together some of the words that Paul wrote to Timothy over 2,000 years ago that we find there in that letter. And one of the things that you'll find today, which is encouraging, is that though we, most of us right now, are on some form of quarantine or uh, hunker-down order, or we're staying in our homes, it's encouraging to know, and Paul actually reminds Timothy, as he reminds us today, that though we may be on a form of lockdown uh, God's word is not chained. It is not bound. And you'll see that today. <clears throat> well, before we get into the text itself, uh, I wanted to introduce you to one of the parables that you will catch within this second chapter of Tim of Second Timothy. Now, uh, you will notice that we will see three, four, maybe even five parables that are all woven into this short section of the text. And, uh, and one of those parables that you would miss, unless you know one of the key words, uh, is a parable that reaches way back into the history of coinage. Now, when we uh, today want to purchase something, we might uh, use our iPhone. So I, I know some people that will pull out their, uh, their iPhone and they will use something like a, a pay app, you know, in order to pay for things using their phone. Uh, there are other people that will, you know, will, will pull out a uh, a credit card. Notice this is a fake credit card in case any of you were thinking you would copy that down uh, and, and use that. But nowadays a lot of people use credit cards and you have to guard that because that can be stolen and used. Um, and there are all kinds of people that would like to uh, ha get their hands on your money and misuse that. Um, but for thousands of years uh, we have used to pay for things a, a form of currency that we still use today, just like they did in the ancient world, and that is using coins. And, and I bet somewhere in your house you can go and find uh, coins of all kinds of shapes and sizes and values, uh, and you'll notice that every one of those coins uh, shares certain characteristics in common. And, and I wanted to talk to you about some of those here to start out with. Now, this coin is called a Morgan Silver Dollar. It's valuable because it's an old coin. This one is from... Uh, 1885, made of, of pure silver, and has been passed down as a gift in our family. And so it's a, it's a special coin in that, in that sense. But this coin, just like any coin you find in your home, uh, has certain characteristics. And those characteristics are uh, uh, an image that you can find on the face of a coin. It's made out of a certain type of metal. Uh, it weighs a, a certain amount. Uh, and those characteristics are what help us know that this coin is authentic. So you can imagine in the ancient world, when they were first starting to use coins, this would be well over uh, 2,500 years ago, uh, the coins back then, just like today, were made out of uh, precious metals. And so early coins were made out of a mix of gold and silver. A lot of early coins were made out of silver itself, long before they started mixing metals uh, the way that they do today. 
And the coins in that time were minted, just like today, but instead of using a machine, there was actually a human being who would take a planchette of metal and they would put it on a die and there would be another die that sat on top of that coin and then someone with a very heavy hammer would hit or strike the top of that die and then that die would transfer an image to the coin. Now the die itself had a carving up on the inside. So you can imagine this uh, large piece of very hard metal and carved into the underside of that metal would be the image, like the image of an emperor in ancient Rome or the image of an animal in some of the uh, ancient cities before that. And, and it, was a, it was a concave image. And that image was called a character. In fact, that's where we get the term character. It comes from that uh, underside of the die. And so that die would be placed on top of a piece of metal, and then the hammer would be brought down, and that character would be transferred to the coin. So this coin has a picture of uh, Lady Liberty on the front. In the ancient world, you would have coins that might have the picture of an emperor, or the image of an owl, or the image of a lion, or of a stag uh, in Ephesus that we talked about in a previous Bible class. If you went into the Temple of Artemis uh, and saw the coins that were there, they would have an image of a stag, which represented uh, Artemis and her protection of that area. And so every a coin from a different area would have a different character or an image. And then those coins could be used in different parts of the world. But in general, you would use the coins that were specific to a given region. We learn from ancient Athens in their agora or their marketplace that one of the problems in the ancient world was counterfeiting. Just like today, there were people in the ancient world who uh, would try to cheat people out of their money. And so just like today, there would be a counterfeiting of of coins in which they would take metal that wasn't necessarily the precious metal and they would try to make it look like the real coin. Or they might use a, uh, a, a less valuable metal on the inside and just coat the outside, sort of plate the outside with the valuable metal and try to trick people into thinking it was the actual coin. But another problem they had was that when you had a coin made out of a precious metal is that from time to time people would try to carve off just the edges of the coin. You can imagine that if you have a coin made out of silver, if I just take a tiny little shaving of this coin and then I take another coin and shave a little off of that one and then I take another coin and shave a little bit, you know, off of off of that one and then if I take another coin and I shave just a corner off, if I keep doing that over and over and over again, I might come up with a nice handful of precious metal shavings that I can then uh, use and and uh, purchase something else with that. So it was a real problem of taking just a little bit off of the coins. Now, some people would be pretty overt and actually cut large parts out of the coin, and so take off chunks of metal instead of just a little bit at a time. But after a while, a coin could get to the point where it was just a small you know, little nub of a thing. And so there were, there were laws that we have found printed from the Agora, or the marketplace in ancient Athens, that spoke to... Uh, the role of a special tester. And that special tester of coins in the marketplace was called the doke maste. So doke maste. And, and it was the role of this person to test the coins. So the, this uh, would be an individual who was trained to weigh the coins, to drop the coin and listen to the sound that it made, uh, to in some cases actually cut a small slit into the coin and make sure that it was the solid metal. And if the coin was proven 
to be true, in other words, it was it was proven to be authentic, then the Dokimaste would say that this coin is Dokemon. Now, don't confuse that with Pokemon. It starts with a D. Doki, Dokemon. And if it was not, if it was counterfeit or anything about it wasn't right, if there had been shavings off the side and uh, and it wasn't its authentic self, then they would say that that coin is a Dokemon. You know, if you put an A in front of any of the old Greek words, it would negate the word itself. And so coins would either be Dokemon, meaning they were tested and approved, or they would be a Dokemon, meaning that they had been tested but not approved. And so we come up with this terminology, a coin that is proven versus those that are not. And because ancient Athens was famous not only for its coinage and its learning, it was also famous for its philosophers. And some of this terminology that comes out of the marketplace made its way into the teaching of the philosophers. And they said that just like a coin has certain character, so does a person. And just as each of us have a character that has been stamped upon each of us, we would say that the image of God is stamped upon every human being, or the image of Christ is stamped on those who are followers of Christ. Uh, Every human being has a character. And just as a coin can have edges shaved away, so can a person. Just a little bit at a time, with one temptation here, with one... uh, 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 random thought there with one temptation to uh, cut a corner in this uh, in this class or in this business with a, a desire to take just a little bit of something that doesn't belong to us. It doesn't happen big or all at once, but the philosophers recognize that a person over time could have their character shaved away just like a coin. And so they would say that certain people, if they were tested, if they were tested and approved to still be authentic, that that person would be Dokimon. But if they were tested and not approved, then they would be a Dokimon. And that could apply to a person's body, to their health, and also to their mind. If a person uh, was, through testing, found to not really know what they said they know, then they would be called a Dokimon. So you get the point that the philosophers had picked up on this this, I, this, this concept that originally applied to coins, and they started applying it to people. So remember that word, uh, dokimon, and that will come up in our reading in just a, in just a moment. Well, let's turn to the text itself, and, uh, and let's turn over to 2 Timothy, and we'll just start in verse 1, and let's read uh, this text, and, uh, and today we'll just be in chapter 2. By the way, the words that we're reading today are actually in the context of a full letter. And uh, just as you would not pick up a letter at home and just read one paragraph here or there, uh, you would read the whole letter. Uh, and then later, you may turn back and find some special parts of the letter that you want to read or think about uh, more fully. And so it's very appropriate, after you've read the entire letter, to go back and look at certain uh, specific parts of the letter that are important to you. Today, we're doing just that. We're opening up and going to a part of the letter that has some very special sayings. But I I don't want to pretend that this will have its full meaning in isolation. It really takes on its fullest meaning when you see it in the context of the entire uh, letter that is a very personal letter that was written by Paul uh, to Timothy when Paul was in prison. And you'll see a hint of that uh, today in our reading. So anyway, 2 Timothy 
uh, chapter 2. You then, my son, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. And you remember last week we talked about how Paul probably had, had in a sense, adopted Timothy as his own son. And you, and you hear this endearing language when Paul is writing this, probably the last letter that he ever wrote. Uh, you hear that endearing language in which he refers to Timothy as his son and says, hang in there, be strong in Christ Jesus. And in the things that you have heard me say in the presence of many witnesses, entrust these to reliable men. The word there, reliable, is the the word uh, faithful men who also will be qualified to teach others. Endure hardship with us like a good soldier of Christ Jesus. Uh, This particular version I'm reading is the New International Version, and it says to endure this hardship with us like a good soldier of, of Christ Jesus. Your version might say to endure suffering. The point here is that Paul is telling Timothy, uh, this is not going to be easy, but but prepare yourself. Prepare yourself for this to be hard. Paul is speaking to Timothy here the way a coach might speak to an athlete, saying, this is going to be a tough game, but you can do it. Uh, prepare yourself You know, to be, to be, to be hit hard, to be uh, to, to, to have to struggle, uh, prepare yourself to be tired and to be frustrated, but you can push through this. And so you hear that kind of language in Paul telling Timothy, don't be afraid of hardship, but you endure this hardship as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. And then Paul uses three different parables. And, and let me just share the parables with you and see if you catch their meaning. The first parable is this. Paul says, no one serving as a soldier gets involved in civilian affairs. And uh, the word there, civilian affairs, is the word for uh, uh, setting up a business in a, in a marketplace. And so he's saying that if a person is a soldier, uh, like here in Anchorage, if there was a enlisted person or a soldier over at J-Bear, it would be very strange for them to also run a major business you know, in downtown Anchorage. And so Paul is saying to, to Timothy the same thing, <clears throat> is that uh, no one who serves as a soldier is going to get involved in the local civilian affairs because he has one loyalty. He wants to please his commanding officer. Similarly, so notice Paul switches now. He doesn't spend too much time on that parable. He switches to the second parable where he says, similarly, if anyone competes as an athlete, he does not receive the victor's crown unless he competes according to the rules. And so he switches from the story about a soldier and, and not getting involved in local business. And he says, no, it's, it's like an athlete. Here's another parable for you. Uh, you are like an athlete who does not win the victor's crown or the prize unless he competes according to the rules. The word rule there is the same as the law. You know, the, the athlete has to abide by the laws of the game. And then he switches to another parable. And he says, the hard-working farmer. And the word hard-working there is the word for the type of work that makes you sweat. Uh, this is not just, uh, just work in general. This is, this is meant to bring to mind that hard labor of, uh, of hard work. And he says, it is that hard-working farmer who should be the first to receive the share of the crops. 
And then Paul does something that great teachers do. He takes a step back and he hands the lesson to his student, Timothy, and he says, think on this. Reflect on what I am saying, for the Lord will give you insight into all of this. You know, when I was preparing even for this lesson and to share these ideas with you, I I spent a lot of time thinking, what was Paul really trying to convey by each of these parables, by this parable of a soldier who does not get involved in in civilian affairs, uh, by bringing up this athlete that only wins when he competes by the rules? And what does he mean by this farmer who, working hard, should be the first one to receive the crops? Uh, because there's, there, there is a powerful message woven into each of those parables. And, and so I struggle with how do I convey to you the meaning behind these parables? And then I saw what Paul said to Timothy, and I realized it would be wrong for me as a teacher to hand you these parables and then tell you this is what they mean. And you know we do that a lot with Bible study. Uh, too many times we'll read a scripture And the teacher, instead of doing what Paul does, instead of pausing and handing you the hard saying or handing you the parable or the event or giving you something that Jesus said that that, that has to be grappled with and, and can be very hard to hear, instead of handing that to you, we too quickly jump over that and say something like, let me tell you what this means. And then we we rush right by. When what Paul does here for Timothy is actually a very loving thing to do, and that is he hands Timothy three different parables, and then he says, think about these things, and the Lord will give you understanding into what they mean. Notice how Paul leads Timothy using these parables. He leads him not to a different scripture, not to the Old Testament, to uh, different laws or the prophets. He leads Timothy right to the Lord himself. And really, that's the goal of all of Scripture. Every Scripture that we read is really intended not to lead you to another Scripture or to some uh, secret knowledge. This uh, Scripture, everything that you read uh, in your Bible, is meant to lead you to the Lord Himself, who is your teacher, uh, as well as your Savior. And so I like how this is an example of Paul doing exactly that. And so I'm going to do the same thing and say... uh, Take a little while uh, when we get to the end of this passage uh, with your family and reflect on what what do these parables mean and uh, see if this isn't true, that the Lord will give you insight into what they mean. So Paul hands that to Timothy, and then he goes on to say, here's what I want you to remember. Remember Jesus Christ, raised from the dead. That's the essence of everything that Paul taught, That is the essence of what it means to be a Christian, is to have a firm conviction in the truth of that statement, that Jesus Christ uh, was raised from the dead. And specifically, the Jesus Christ who was descended from David. And Paul says, this is my good news. This is my gospel, for which I am suffering, even to the point of being chained up like a criminal. Now, we're not told this in Scripture, but we believe that Paul was, uh, at this time, was in one of the prisons in Rome. And at that point in time, we're told that there were about five different prisons all around Rome. And one of those prisons was actually in what is now the modern-day Forum, or the, uh, the part of ancient Rome 
where the emperor would have lived. And the emperor at this time would have been Nero. And so it's very likely that Nero had imprisoned Paul. And we think that Paul was being held in the prison that, is, that was actually somewhere on those grounds where Nero lived. One of the reasons that we think that is because at the end of Philippians, uh, which is a letter that Paul wrote probably about the same time as Second Timothy, Paul uh, ends that letter by saying, all the saints greet you, but especially those who are of the household of Caesar. And so we think that Paul must have been really close to uh, to Caesar's household in the prison that was there on the grounds. But notice that Paul says that even though I am uh, chained like a criminal, like a lawbreaker, that God's word is not chained. So just like just like many of us feel today, we are we are in our homes. We are in a form of lockdown, uh, but we still have the ability to read, study, and share uh, God's word. Uh, just as two thousand years ago, Paul recognized that you can chain the person, but you cannot chain, uh, in this case, literally the Logos of God, the Word of God. Therefore, I endure everything for the sake of the elect, that they too may obtain salvation that is in Christ Jesus. That word salvation is the word uh, to make things right again, to make things well again, that we find in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. And then Paul says, here is a trustworthy saying. Now, this is one of his favorite sayings, and the, the word uh, there, or the phrase, trustworthy saying, is actually the three words together, uh, which is pistos ho logos, which means faithful is the word. It's, uh, so he uses the word for, for faith. And he says, faithful is this word. And then Paul gives us a, a song or a poem that was probably common at the time. If we died with him, we will also live with him. If we endure, we will also reign with him. If we disown him, he will also disown us. If we are faithless, he will remain faithful, for he cannot disown himself. And so you see the progression through that poem. But notice how the progression starts with, if we are aligned with God, if we died with him, we will also live with him. If we endure, we will also reign with him. But the opposite is also true. If we disown, or your version may say, if we deny him, in other words, if we say, I am not connected with him, then he will, he will say, that's true. Uh, this person is not connected with me. But if we are faithless, if we are a pistos, or if we do not have faith, God uh, remains faithful, or the word there is, his faith remains. So even if our faith is lost, his faith remains, for God cannot disown or deny, uh, deny himself. There's a, a version of the Count of Monte Cristo which is, a, of course, a novel that was written by Alexander Dumas, but it came out in a, a movie a number of years ago. And in the movie version, uh, there's a, a, a really powerful scene where they are in the, the Chateau d'If, which is the prison, and Edmund, the star character, is, has been in the prison unjustly for some like 13 years, and they are about to make their escape. And, and his accomplice, the, the person who is helping them to escape, is the priest. And this priest has a secret. He has a treasure map, and he, he ends up giving this map 
to Edmond and says there's a there's a treasure at Sparta and here's how to how to get there. Uh, but the priest ends up dying. In the book, he dies of uh, something like a, a stroke or some type of illness. In the movie, I think he's dying because um, some rocks fell on him on a cave-in. Uh, but it's in that dying scene that the priest looks at Edmund and he says, uh, this, this map will lead you to a great treasure, but only use this treasure for good, not for evil. And Edmund says, I will surely use it for revenge. And the priest says to Edmund, this is your final lesson. And in his dying breath, he says, your dying lesson is this. Do not commit the crime for which you now serve the sentence. For it is mine to avenge, says the Lord. And Edmund looks down and says, but I don't believe in God. And the priest says, it doesn't matter. He believes in you. And I wonder if the directors of that movie had in mind the same thing that Paul was pointing to here when he says, even if, if we lose faith, God's faith remains. And, uh, and, and that is something that is a, about God's character, just as love is part of uh, the essence of God, just as truth is a part of the essence of God, so is, so is faith. And so Paul transitions from that poem or that song, and he says, keep reminding them of these things. Now remember that Paul was saying to Timothy, you are passing the baton on to other people of faith. You remind them of these things. And that's why he points them back to that saying about faith. But then he also says, warn them before God against quarreling about words. It is of no value and only ruins those who listen. So there was something going on. Uh, there, were, there was something about where Timothy lived. This may have still been in Ephesus, where you'll remember that the primary way of responding to anything that you disagreed with or anything that affected you negatively in Ephesus was to, to cause a riot and to drag people you know, into the big theater where there were arguments and yelling. So you can imagine that was the culture in which Timothy lived. And Paul says, don't get sucked into that. But instead, and here's one of the most important phrases of this whole chapter, do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a workman who does not need to be ashamed and who correctly handles the word of truth. Well, did you see that word approved? It's as if you uh, get this, this image of Paul telling Timothy, <clears throat> Timothy, um, present yourself to God like a, like a coin that is, that is authentic. Place, place yourself in God's hand as one who has been tested and approved. And do you know what word that Paul uses here? He uses that very phrase that we talked about earlier. He says to Timothy, Timothy, present yourself as dokimon to God, as one who has been tested and approved. Not as somebody who has had parts of your character and parts of your faith shaved away by this argument or that argument or pursuits that are not important. You present your, yourself to God as somebody who is uh, fully authentic, fully, uh, fully faithful. Now, he's not saying here to Timothy that your works will in some way impress God. In chapter 1, he said that any association 
with, uh, uh, with God's saving of us has nothing to do with our works, has everything to do with what he does for us. So this isn't talking about Timothy being saved because uh, of some works that he does. What Paul is saying to Timothy is there are going to be countless times when someone is going to try to shave off just a little bit of your faith, a little bit here, a little cut there, and Paul tells Timothy, don't allow it. Do everything within your power. Make it your ambition. Work as hard as you can to make sure that you are presenting yourself to God as someone who is tested and approved. Present yourself as dokimon to God so that you need not be ashamed, but be one who correctly handles the word of truth. Avoid godless chatter. So you hear here where Paul starts saying, here are the ways that uh, your faith may be shaved off a little at a time, either through godless chatter. Uh, Avoid that because those who indulge in it will become more and more ungodly. You notice that this, just that idea, a little bit at a time, becoming more and more ungodly. Their teaching will spread like gangrene, an infection that just continues to spread. And then Paul starts naming names. Uh, among them are Hymenaeus and Philetus, who have wandered away from the truth. They say that the resurrection has already taken place, and they destroy the faith of some. This is probably a reference to the early Gnostic teaching, where uh, people would say that the resurrection has already occurred and there are specific leaders that if you listen to them and you follow them, then you will gain the secret knowledge or the gnosis that will help you break through all the layers of the archons and reach the true God. There were, there were just layers and layers of, of false teaching. And Paul was probably addressing an early version of that when he says, avoid uh, those uh, who have wandered away from the truth. Uh, because in their teaching they destroy the faith of some. They've carved off so much that they've destroyed their faith. Nevertheless, God's solid foundation stands firm, sealed with this inscription, the Lord knows those who are his. Everyone who confesses the name of the Lord must turn away from wickedness. And then Paul breaks into another parable. And he says, in a large house there are articles not only of gold and silver, but also of wood and clay. Some are for noble purposes and some for ignoble. If a man cleanses himself of the latter, he will be an instrument for noble purposes, made holy, useful to the master, and prepared to do any good work. And so using a different parable, Paul makes the statement in a little different way to say, put yourself in God's hands as a useful instrument. A number of years ago, I had a young man wrote me a letter and he said, how can I prepare myself to be a Christian doctor? I want to study and become a physician and study medicine. How can I be a Christian doctor? And at first, I didn't know what he was really asking. Uh, He could have been asking, um, how how is it that I can continue to, uh, to be a Christian uh, even though I'm studying a, a secular subject, he could have been asking uh, in the study of medicine, um, how, do I, how do I do what I'm learning to do as a physician, but do it as a Christian as if that would be somehow different than the way other physicians might practice. Uh, but then it occurred to me that what he was really asking is what does it mean 
uh, as a physician to be a Christian placed in the hands of Christ. The image that came to mind was that of a surgeon who is standing beside the operating table over the patient, and the surgeon at one moment reaches up his hand and he asks for the very instrument that's needed to apply to the patient to save a life. And in the same way, you have this image of Jesus standing over the world, and he lifts his hand, and at just the moment that he needs it, he asks for the instrument that he needs, and that instrument is you. And he calls out your name, and you are the one who has slapped into his hand at just the moment, at just the right time, to do what he needs to save the world. And that's the image that Paul is is bringing to mind for Timothy here. He's saying that there are some instruments that are not good for much of anything, and there are other instruments that are used for very noble purposes. And he says, you present yourself to God as one of those instruments, so that when God needs you at just the right moment to say just the right thing or to be a part of uh, just the right action that God needs, he lifts his hand, calls for you, and you are the authentic, tested uh, item that is placed in his hands or the, the instrument that he needs. And then he goes on to give him further advice about avoiding this shaving away tendency of his faith. He says, flee the evil desires of youth and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace, along with those who call on the Lord out of a pure heart. Don't have anything to do with foolish and stupid arguments because you know they produce quarrels. Uh, Foolish arguments there. It's actually in the Greek, the word moron. Don't have anything to do with with moronic arguments or unlearned. Uh, Some versions say ignorant arguments because uh, they only produce quarrels. And the Lord's servant must not quarrel. Instead, he must be kind to everyone, able to teach and not resentful. Those who oppose him, he must gently instruct in the hope that God will grant them repentance, leading them to a knowledge of the truth, and that they will come to their senses and escape the trap of the devil who has taken them captive to do his will. So the text there ends with with really two thoughts. And the the first is this thought that Paul is, is telling Timothy, you are prepared for a special work. It's going to be tough. Uh, prepare yourself to endure the hardships that come with this work, but present yourself to God as one who has been tested and approved. Avoid that that tendency of having parts of your faith shaved off in small, little, incremental ways by getting sucked in to all the uh, the ways in in this world that your faith and your character ends up being shaved away. And he says, avoid that. Instead, you present yourself to God as an instrument that is useful, as one who is tested and approved. And then notice when he says, in this culture or time in which he's writing, when you come head to head with others and there's a tendency to uh, engage in these foolish, uh, unproductive arguments, he says, you handle your opponents gently, being able to teach. The idea is that if you are the one who is solid, then it's the other, uh, the other one who has to bend. And Paul says, you remain the solid one. And be gentle. You don't have to be hard to make other people bend. You just have to be solid. And he says that if you are gentle 
and you continue to teach, then it won't be you, but God who will grant others repentance, a change of mind so that they can escape the trap of the devil who has taken them captive to do his will. And so you see this comparison within this text that you and I have a a choice to either put ourselves into the hands of God as an instrument that has been tested and approved, useful to God, or we end up in the hands of the devil who uh, in in his evil way uh, takes us captive to, uh, to create more evil in the world, to introduce more evil into the world. But there is a choice as to whose hand uh, you will be placed in. And Timothy says, I'm sorry, Paul says to Timothy, uh, when you think of those people who are opposed to you, who are making things hard for you, uh, do not oppose them in a way that, that is the same way that they argue and fight and, uh, and, and get caught up in all these foolish arguments. Instead, you remain firm and watch what God does as he changes people to bend around uh, that faith, which is solid. And the hope is that those people who, uh, who have a pistos or, or who are a lacking faith will end up uh, getting repentance or tra- changing their mind and following God again. Well, that's the passage for today. And so I leave that with you and your family. Uh, perhaps take some time at the end of uh, this reading to discuss some of the things that you read. What stood out in the text to you? What are some new words or some new parables that stood out to you? And you might take some time to think about two questions. One, for our family, we'll be talking about uh, what are some of those ways in our life that we recognize in our culture, in our town, in our uh, school, or in our work, uh, that it's tempting to have just small little parts of our faith shaved away. And we'd like to identify where are those areas that Paul would say, avoid that and present yourself to God uh, as one who is dokimon, who is fully tested and approved. And then the second uh, point there is take some time to think about how you respond to people who do not have faith or people who uh, are opposed even to your faith. And what does Paul teach us here through Timothy uh, about how to respond in this world to people who do not have faith, who are opposed to our faith, uh, and those whom God loves and one day may call back to repentance? And how do we best respond to those people in our, in our community? So I'll leave that lesson with you. May God bless you this week. And may you experience his peace. Be well.